0: happy to have the guests that we have on. We're continuing on I guess with uh, you know our end of the year episodes we'd like to kind of sit back and be leisurely and, and get uh, some
1: familiar faces familiar
0: faces. yeah familiar exactly. voices some strange familiar face and voice. yes. Uh, Mr. Timothy Rinner, welcome back to conspiracy normal. It's uh, I think it's been about a year since we had you on actually. Oh, no. Well, well, we did. I forget about the Strange Realities preview. The Strange Realities promo. But yeah. But this being like just like you by yourself type of thing. I think the last time we had you on bef- uh, was with Chad, I think. Oh, I think yeah. Talk about, about the witch, the witch cloud. cloud. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 But you are coming up with projects just left and right. And I think you hit me up not too long ago about a new podcast that you're doing. You're doing another podcast
2: yes i want to make this very clear it's an addition to not instead of strange familiars strange familiars is still the, the main thing that's still happening still on a regular release schedule nothing is changing with that
0: right and this one is kind of a shorter bit of a format and a little bit of a different format than uh strange familiars so i'll just let you talk about what you're doing
1: yeah
2: so i was reading all these lives of the saints and particularly but not exclusively but particularly the the medieval lives of the saints are really really interesting really really cool and there's a lot of um crossover with folklore in there and i have a lot of awesome stories like we've got one coming up on i say we i'm the only one doing this podcast i gotta get used to saying me when it's when it's the flowered path uh the so the podcast is called the flowered path um it's about saints but we have an episode coming up on the, what's called the cephalophores. And these are all saints that are pictured holding their own head. So they've been beheaded and they're pictured holding their head. So the, a lot of stories about them, you know, picking up their head and walking two miles and, you know, preaching before they fall down. Or, you know, one person, one of the saints got their head cut off and she carried it back to the local bishop who was the one who converted her. And then fell at her at uh, his doorstep and stuff. So it's really neat stuff like that, that, you know, you can believe or not believe, but they're, they're really cool stories from, uh, these saints lives. And as I was reading them, I was like, this would make cool, strange familiars material, but also I don't want to hit people over the head with too much religious stuff on strange familiars. So I thought, well, I'll do a separate podcast since so I'm reading about this stuff anyway. I'd want to do something with this information, so I thought, you know what? I'll
0: start a new podcast, and that's The Flowered Path. So what got you interested in reading that book?
2: Um, you know, I've been reading well, I was reading about Marian Apparitions for Strange Familiars and the Lord's Apparition, um Saint Bernadette, she was sainted, and three no two of the three Fatima seers are sainted at this Mm -hmm. point Uh, um so you know i started reading Mm -hmm. about their lives because of these these apparition shows we're doing over at strange familiars and that just got me interested in saints in general and i started i would just pick a saint you know just when i had some free time so i'm gonna read about this one and i started turning up these stories that's just like wow this is so cool the the, one of my favorites is the uh, first thing I did was the Saint Leonard, and that's how the podcast got its name. Really, really interesting medieval saint. Um, he's kind of the patron saint of prisoners, and there's lots of really cool stories about prisoners invoking his intercession, and their chains would fall off of them, and they would all these they would hang their chains over his uh, shrine or over his tomb as a sort of tribute to him. There were these broken chains. So his his uh, tomb was covered with these chains and stuff. But there's this other story about him, a place called Saint Leonard's Wood in England, where there was a dragon, and supposedly he he fought this dragon and uh, got in a big bloody battle with it. and Ended up winning. He he killed the dragon. They they, they don't say how. They don't say what weapon he used. But uh, he ends up killing the dragon. But he's wounded in the course of this, and everywhere a drop of blood fell. A white lily sprung up, mm-hmm. so that's you know that's the the title for the show came from that the flowered path. As you know, I figured as he's walking away, he's leaving this path of flowers behind him. I thought it was a pretty neat uh, uh visual image, and then a great metaphor for saints in general.
1: And that's your first episode, right, on Saint Leonard?
2: Yeah, Saint Leonard. Yep. yep. So it's it's very fertile ground. There's just a lot, a lot of stuff. Like I said. If you know if people aren't religious, I, th- I think they could take it as folklore and just enjoy these stories as like, like cool folklore stories.
0: Right, right. I don't know how how personal you want to go. We've talked about it a little bit on the last like the Strange Realities Preview episode, where you've you've kind of gone back to Catholicism. Yeah, I was
2: I was born and raised Catholic, and you know, as, as you do when you get into punk rock and weirdo stuff, you, you step away from that. And, you know, I spent my years, uh, fiddling with various occult practices and so forth. And, um, really in my thirties, I w- I really kind of came back to it, but I wasn't like really going back to church and stuff. I just was sort of reclaimed it. I would say I was culturally Catholic, but, uh, wasn't, I hadn't really gone back to church on a regular basis, but, uh, just recently I've, you know, I've had a lot of sort of wonderful things in my life that I feel have pointed me back in that direction. And I thought, you know, it's time to, uh, walk the walk, not just, not just talk the talk. So I've been, I've gone back to church and I've made my first confession in like something like 40 years. And, uh, I, yeah.
1: Did you have a lot to, to confess? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going,
2: going into the specifics here, yeah. but yeah, at some point the priest stopped me and just said, Did you kill
0: anybody? <laughs> I said, No, I didn't kill anybody. He said, All right. <laughs> He's like, Is there anything I really need to know about
2: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, it was a long list. It was a long list. But uh, you know, it was it was also uh I'm finding meaning in this stuff. When I was a kid, I didn't get it and it was um i don't know if it was ever explained to me in the way mm-hmm. it's been sort of these practices have been explained to me or maybe i just didn't understand it or i didn't want to give it time but yeah. uh, i didn't like it as a kid i was just like ah this is you know but uh i i realized you know like i said in my 30s like hey there's something special here and then uh especially lately i found that um i'm really making a connection and and just it, it, these rituals mean a lot to me and I'm, I don't want to like evangelize or try to convince anybody. Like, you know, what I tell people is, Hey, some things hum and some things don't hum. And I follow the things that hum. And, and this is really, really hums for me. And it's, it's uh really kind of touching my heart in a, in a wonderful way.
0: Well, I think when you explore and study the supernatural as much as well, we all do, but, but you especially, Tim. I mean, doing Strange Familiars, writing the books that you have done, um, these other projects and your and themes in your artwork. I feel like it's not so hard to embrace some of the supernatural aspects of mm-hmm. a saint and and the supernatural aspects of religion itself. So I heard Soraya not too long ago on his show talk about how you and and Josh both used to be much more uh, flesh and blood, as far as Bigfoot goes, much more materialist in that way. You guys have, you know, obviously with where the footprint's in, that's definitely, that the, there's a more supernatural thing to that. So just using that as an example, do you feel like since you've embraced that worldview more, that it's easier to embrace supernatural aspects?
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm talking to people every week who I've, you know, absolutely believe these people have been, you know, uh, very much affected by it by something unseen you know something unusual something you know paranormal if you want to call it that and you just think about it, it's like well these saints they're talking about things like um levitation they're talking about things like supernatural heaviness you know they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're too heavy to pick up these things occur in paranormal accounts mm-hmm. you know they're talking about strange lights that follow them around you know they're talking you know these uh you get kind of the the flip of the coin of the Bigfoot thing so Bigfoot smells bad he's a he's people describe him as blacker than black and uh he kind of leaves uh dead animals and and excrement behind and I, by the way I'm not saying Bigfoot's a demon I'm just using this as an example Saints are kind of like the flip side of that. They're, people say they're clothed in light. So instead of looking like a black, a walking black hole, they seem like they're, they're clothed in light, uh, at least apparitions of saints, angels too. They give off a, a very good smell, um, which is, by the way, one of the things that that happened to me that kind of tur- was a turning point for me, bringing me back to the church. I can get into that in a minute. Yeah,
0: please.
2: They give please. off a good smell. Um, they, you know, it seems like they, they bring this sort of, opposite of everything that that bigfoot brings and again i'm not saying bigfoot's a demon i'm not going there i'm just saying like it's kind of like the Mm -hmm. same sorts of phenomenon just kind of like the flip side of the coin to it so it's like is it that hard to believe when you get an unknown smell Mm -hmm. with bigfoot that smells bad that you would get an unknown smell with these things that smells good you know it seems like as brother richard says it's using the same channels whatever it is it's using the same channels to get through
1: the same kind of mysticism that you're recognizing in that and in these stories about the saints you have both uh supernatural phenomenon like these types you're talking about but then also like you mentioned places being tied to the saints and that seems to resonate with some of your your mysticism that you already had as far as the, the, these places are dedicated where these things supposedly happen and they have recurring phenomenon just like all this other stuff you study
2: absolutely yeah whether they're saints you know graves sometimes uh you know, the recent episode of saint gabriel like deaf people were just taking dirt from his grave and put it in their ear and, and they could hear again or putting it rubbing in their eyes if they were blind and they could see again or just places they were places they walked you know they, he he stayed in this cave not gabriel but you know other saints have stayed in this cave or whatever and they become these these sort of uh places of of pilgrimage sometime where, where people go there and and miracles continue to happen. So yeah, places are are very important. Uh, to take a step back, I want to push a, back a little bit because I heard Soraya say that I, he likes to frame that I was a total flesh and blood guy. You can read in my first book before I was before I ever went on where did the road go. In my first book, I I acknowledged there's something weird about Bigfoot. It's not just a, a normal animal. So yes, Soraya was probably further along that path than I did. And he, and he might've helped me take a few steps in that direction. But, uh, I would like to say I was,
0: I was on my way there already. We're going to set the record straight on conspiracy normal <laughs> like Soraya said, oh, where did the road go? Okay. I love Soraya. <laughs> I love Soraya, but I
2: I do go back to my first book, Soraya. You will find, I, I mentioned there's weird stuff about Bigfoot in my very
0: first book. Yeah. So what was the experience that you had with, uh, the good smell?
2: Yeah. So there's a, um, a really, really wonderful, um, Marian apparition account from Spain in the 1960s called Garabandal. Uh, that's the town in Spain where it was happening. And I uh, talk about paranormal phenomena. I'm, I'm going to do, uh, I'm probably going to write a book on this, but I'm going to do a show on this upcoming and I'll get into it. It's, there's so much going on there. It makes Mothman prophecies look boring.
0: Are you doing the book on this particular case or on, and apparitions in total.
2: I'm doing a book on Garabandal, um, basically like a, a paranormalist look at it. There's been a ton of you know Catholic people that have looked at it, but I'm going to look at it as as paranormal phenomenon uh, and and break it down in that way, um, hopefully in a respectful way to to the visions. This is this uh, incident has not been approved by the Catholic Church, by the way. Some visions are approved and some aren't. It's a, there's a whole process to the approval, just like kind of the process of someone being sainted and uh there's lots of visions that that have been approved and this one is just kind of in limbo there the catholic church is just kind of wait and you know, a wait and see things there's a lot of predictions have been made by the apparitions and they want to see what happens but in any case um the seers were offering religious items up to the apparition of the virgin mary to kiss and she would kiss these items and give them back, and she said these are to be distributed throughout the world—rosaries, uh, crucifixes—and at some point they started giving her missiles, so whole big books. And then they would take these books and they would just cut them into little pieces and put them in saint medals and send them all over the world. Mm-hmm. And I acquired one of these uh, that the the you know Virgin Mary had kissed—one of these relics, a, a, a medal—and it came in the mail. And Allison had her back to me. Now Allison's a agnostic at best. She's she's not on this journey uh, back to Catholicism with me, and that's fine. She's was she raised Catholic too? No, no, okay. no. She was raised atheist. Gotcha. <laughs> at, but you know that's fine. She's she's g- gives me the freedom to believe and do as I I want as far as that goes. And and likewise, I, I give it to her. It's, she doesn't have to believe what I believe. But again, she's a non believer. She's got her back to me washing dishes at the sink. I just got in the mail. I tear open the envelope and the room is immediately filled with the smell of roses. Absolutely just boom. The whole room just fills up with the smell of roses. And Allison with her back to me says, whoa, roses. And if you know anything about the Virgin Mary apparitions, uh, roses are, you know, one of the things that, well, they're one of the flowers that's associated with the Virgin Mary. They call her the. The thornless rose but uh these smells these sort of flowery smells and stuff are, are very much associated with her so that was a really powerful moment for me i was like whoa this is really huge and uh that was one of the things that's like hey i'm kind of being pointed back here i think like this is there's too much going on too, too
0: many taps on the shoulder to just start ignoring this stuff wow yeah, I've noticed you're going to do a lot about the uh, the Marian apparitions because you had that two-parter with Brother Richard about uh, Fatima, which was fascinating, by the way.
2: Next up is Nock and uh, one other one. We're going to combine them into one show, I think. And then down the road, I'm going to get into Garbondal, which is my absolute favorite. I, I just absolutely love it.
0: Yeah, just as an aside, I mean, I, I, there are some... Uh, that we talked to Vincent Treewell about one that well, supposed Marian apparition that happened in Wisconsin. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but there are some that a really old one, uh, yeah, this was sometime I think in the 50s, maybe oh, okay, because there's uh, there's, a,
2: there's a uh, I think one an old, an old, old one like in the 1800s, there too, but I, I'm, I'm I think I know the one you're talking about, yeah,
0: so i mean there's there's some that the church are just kind of like very against and there's some that i guess that well obviously the ones that they they recognize and then there's obviously the ones that they are kind of wait and see i mean you Mm -hmm. know what's kind of the some of that criteria is that they where they say okay this is a real Marian apparition this is the virgin mary so i mean this this seems like it's a very slow process but i don't know with how long did it take for Fatima? I mean, was it like 30, 20-30 years? Something like that. I think yeah, yeah. I think it
2: was maybe in the yeah, 40s or 50s before it was finally they finally said okay, right. we're good with this. Uh, because predictions are made and obviously if if predictions are made and they don't come true, the church doesn't want to stand behind it, you know. Um it's it's odd because some of these there's you know, there's healings that have taken place, right? And there's conversions that have taken place and there's kind of wonderful things that have taken place, but the church is still hands off because there's, there's these predictions that have been made. So, you know, I'm, I'm guessing they don't want to be caught, you know, mm-hmm. approving something and then down the line, whatever this prediction mm-hmm. is, doesn't come true. And then they look like, well, you know, what happened? And I'm, I honestly wrestle with that as well, because there's some uh, very specific predictions that were made as regards to Garbandal that need to happen in the seer's lifetime and they are getting older They're, I think the, the main seer is in her seventies now. So
1: what are some of those? Yeah.
2: Um, they're supposed to be a revelation that everyone in the world receives. Um, the They basically, they say, you will know it when it happens they said if if you don't want to believe you're like anybody who doesn't want to believe is never going to believe it but uh basically it's it's calling each person to account and they said you will know when it happens so everyone in the world is supposed to receive that and then there's supposed to be a sign that happens in on the mountain there at Garabandal. that's a permanent sign that stays until the end of time whatever it is mm-hmm. so there's a big sign is supposed to happen there and then if people don't Straighten up and, and kind of straighten straighten out. There's supposed to be a big uh, punishment that happens. So there's there's three things, and I think the the first one the the uh, the mental warning or whatever that they call it the, the the call to account or or whatever you would you would call that is supposed to happen a short time before the sign, and then the the punishment happens. I think a year after the sign, if people they said basically if people don't straighten up, so. But they, these are supposed to happen within a year of this the, the, uh, the main seer's, or I mean within the main seer's lifetime, not within a year, but sometime within her lifetime. And like I said, she's in her 70s now, so if it doesn't happen, I don't think mm-hmm. the church is ever going to approve it.
1: And we talked a little bit before we started recording about how things are much more formal, bureaucratic process now to accept saints as well. Yeah. And in the past, these were more informal of developments of folklore and these folk saints
2: yeah like I said they were kind of grandfathered in these these older Saints These like medieval Saints a lot of them you know if you were martyred and somebody remembered you you're almost certainly a Saint you know (laughs) like you that's a way to almost instant sainthood um a lot of these things like if they have you know people remember them doing miracles or maybe healing people or something and they would just start being called a Saint and at some point they were just sort of like I said grandfathered in but I don't know when, you know, I I should have looked this up, honestly, before I, I talked to you guys. But at some point, the church is like, no, we need to formalize this process. So then at a, at a point, it's like, no, okay, we need a certain number of miracles. We need, you know, this, this, and this, and, a, you know, a bunch of proofs before someone is, is officially canonized as a saint.
0: Right. And of course, you've got like the apostles, you know, obviously those are... You know already kind of grandfathered in and that I, I think some of the old testament prophets are in there too mm-hmm. yeah uh, wikipedia's you know of course uh, has a pretty comprehensive list of marian apparitions and it'll show what the category is and how the 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 catholic church comes down on them mm-hmm. and full total approval by the roman catholic church there's only six
2: oh wow yeah
0: yeah so there's some other categories in here that I won't go into, but like full absolute approval it's it says that's endorsed by the Vatican, by the Holy See, uh, six of them that are deemed worthy of belief.
1: But like with yeah. the saints, these become a part of people's practices, regardless of the official church approval. I
2: mean, that's That's me like, you know, sitting back here with this, you know i'm I'm wearing that medal from Garbon right now i wear it every day and it, it means so much to me and what happened means so much to me and what what do i do with that information if at some point the church says nah this isn't approved you know i don't think it necessarily means it's kind of like folk saints i think so the mm-hmm. folk saints are they're they will not necessarily like and we're not talking about like um uh santa muerte which is a little bit different that's a little bit more darker and 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 more occult but but in general like folk saints like you know some guy like like saint john billingsley or whatever the guy who lived down the road that you know people decided that is a saint you know back 200 years ago or something um they're still saints they're just not canonized saints right so these they're they're still saints and technically We are all saints. If you know, just when we get to heaven, uh, that's when we become a saint. But uh, there's these canonized saints. So I'm I'm guessing I would take it like that. I would take it as like a a a folk apparition in a in the same sense as like it's not necessarily approved. But like there's been good stuff has happened there. There's been there's been healings. There's been you know, like I said, there's been conversions. There's been wonderful kind of things that have happened as a result of that. But it may never get approved. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's an interesting place to be for a while. Priests weren't even allowed to visit Garbondal. Now they've relaxed that now, now priests are allowed to go and people do pilgrimages there and stuff. They've, they've relaxed that a lot. But for, I think throughout the seventies that poli- uh, priests, they the Catholic church said, no, don't even visit there.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Just as an aside to with the, we're talking about, uh, the process of canonization and how that, it looks like it was a slow process through the Middle Ages, and I think by like the 17th century, it was fully like the Pope had to do it. Mm. Yeah, so that it makes sense. It's kind of a slow process over the course of of a few hundred years
1: of developing a formal yeah. system.
0: Yeah, like bishops were basically doing their own canonizations. That makes there was, sense. There yeah. was some problem with that, because uh, apparently it said something like. So Decretal of 1173, Pope Alexander III reprimanded some bishops for permitting veneration of a man who was merely killed while intoxicated. (laughs) Prohibited veneration of the man and most significantly decreed that you shall not therefore presume to honor him in the future. So, and he said, you know, it's not lawful for you to venerate him as a saint without the authority of the Catholic Church. So it's kind of the start of this kind of long process Uh where it's you know the pope has to make that decree only yeah
2: but i think generally like like all the celtic saints and stuff they were all like grandfathered in
0: right right medieval right. saints and stuff. yeah yeah but returning to the podcast uh the flowered path how are you choosing who you want to talk about completely randomly <laughs> it's, it's absolutely it's just like
2: whatever catches my attention um the so the first two were just you know the saint leonard i knew i wanted to do him first because that's how i chose the name for the podcast um saint agatha was the second one it was there's a text called the golden legend it's just a medieval lives of the saints kind of thing and i literally just chose her at random so that's oh that's a cool story so i did her second the next two i would had a commission to do a uh, piece of artwork, an icon of uh, Saint Gemma Galgani, and Saint Gabriel of Our Lady of Sorrows, who was episode three. He kind of comes about fifty years before her. He dies about fifty years before she's born, but he plays this very important part in her story. So I thought before I do her story, I'm going to do his story. So it was kind of a, a method to my madness with that. So I did him, and then and then her. Basically, I did her because I was doing this commissioned artwork of her and i had to study her anyway so i thought well i'll do i'll do saint Gemma, and then uh the cephalophores will probably be next that hasn't come out yet the headless saints and that was just i I stumbled upon a story of one of these headless saints Like that is a cool story and then i realized there's a whole category of them so i just did a whole episode on various headless saints
1: do you have your illustrations for those yet not yet okay that's gonna be cool
2: yeah, yeah, I'm doing. That's the other thing. I'm trying to do an illustration for each each saint as I go along here.
1: And as far
0: as like uh, a little bit about canonization and the difference between sainthood and was it blessed or beatification?
2: Yeah, beatification. Yeah,
0: beatification. What what's some of the criteria uh, for someone to be declared a saint?
2: As far as I know, you need you know to have lived an exemplary life and you need a certain number of miracles i think it's 3 um confirmed miracles what they call and con- not how do you confirm a miracle i you know i don't know but if it's by location i suppose you know you have people in each location say oh yeah no i saw this person at the same time uh but other than that you know you, you have people's uh, testimony you know i was miraculously healed after you know praying to this person or or this person you know in in uh, if they're, they were still alive you know laid hands on me and healed me or something so I, you need a certain number of miracles i think it's three confirmed miracles and then uh the church will look into their lives very thoroughly and they will they will take their time doing it and uh, eventually you know they'll determine one way or another okay this this person is worthy i think it used to take like a long long time but it's like um pope john paul ii was canonized very quickly i guess you know they had plenty of information on him rather right. been the pope
0: i've noticed something in looking at this because like you know listening to the podcast kind of spurred uh, a little bit of interest in this and i've looked at this before that there's some uh like i think francis like he made like 800 and something people you know some from some battle in i think in italy in like the 1400s or something And he made these people, like 800 of them, into saints. He's like sainted, like 800-something people, but 819 of them were uh, from this this particular battle. Hmm. I thought that was pretty interesting that there's like a group. I think John Paul II, I think he sainted these people that died in, like a revolt in Mexico in the 1920s. Like the government was anti-clericalist and they executed a lot of people and some of these people had been sainted um as well uh but what what does it mean when someone is beatified what does that what does that mean that's the you know the one, one step from sainthood i believe
2: so you're 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 venerable you're beatified and then uh that you know it just means like you're on the ne- you're on the path you're on the next step and then the, the church will uh eventually i guess decide either way because there's some people have been venerable or beatified for like 200 years they've just not mm-hmm. been canonized yet but right. some people again it happens like i said with the pope saint john paul ii it happened pretty quickly
0: yeah all very interesting stuff let's talk a little bit about some of the saints that you that you've already talked about um, sure. uh you you've done four uh, as of this recording you've done there may be an episode out uh when we put this out next week but Um, you've done four episodes of this so far yeah and uh we can just start with saint leonard we talked a little bit about him with the the dragon aspect
2: he was a disciple of saint remegius and these are all like really early guys as far as in the european church um they converted king clovis um who was one of these very early like frankish kings uh one of the first like frankish kings i think if not the first to be converted to christianity and it was him that gave leonard uh that he promised to, to leonard he said every prisoner you visit can be released so that's what kind of started him as as the these uh, patron saint to uh, prisoners um
1: he's usually depicted with with chains
2: yeah he had broken chains or chains um he's he kind of went to become a hermit in the forest of limousine in france and he would preach in the aquitaine there um started gathering followers that would come just to be around him eventually you know kind of turns into a monastery there's a story about him roaming through the woods in limousine and king clovis was there hunting and his wife uh, went into labor so when these old kings would go hunting it was like they would take the whole court with them, you know, and they often had these huge hunting lodges and stuff in the woods. So they would just take the whole court with them and take their wives and everything else. And they go out hunting and come back to the lodge or whatever. Well, and while she's in this lodge, this queen goes into labor and St. Leonard was, he's walking through the forest and he hears these cries. She'd been in labor, I think for days they said at this point. And he comes in and the King says, who are you? Didn't recognize him. He says, I'm, I'm a disciple of Remigius. And the king thinks, well, maybe this guy can help. So he goes and prays over and the, the child's delivered. And King Clovis says to him, like, you can have, I will give you gold. I'll give you silver. I'll give you this whole forest, whatever you want. And St. Leonard just says, just give me an, as much land as I can w- ride around at night in on my donkey. So the king says, go for it. So he hops on his donkey, rides around, and then this turns into a community the abbey of nobla um uh, he establishes a monastery there and it's after this that these prisoners start invoking his name and uh, like i said their, their chains would break and they they'd bring the chains to to his tomb and if at when he died otherwise they'd bring it to the church there and they they'd lay these church these chains you know at the church or after he died they'd lay him over his tombs and stuff tomb rather and he became this uh, patron saint of prisoners. And there's all these wonderful stories of prisoners, you know, invoking him as intercession, and their chains just falling off, or the the uh, the prison doors just opening, and they can just walk out. And you know, the guards are either put asleep, or you know, something happens to the guards. Uh, they run away in fear. Sometimes Saint Leonard would appear in apparition form, and the guards would run away in fear, and these these guys would just walk out of prison. So he's this kind of really wonderful patron saint of prisoners.
1: Do you know if that continues? Uh, the veneration among prisoners continues to this day. I, uh,
2: I mean, he's still the patron saint of prisoners, so I would imagine. You know, if you're Catholic and if you're in prison, you know, uh, that's the guy. I would think, probably, he's he's the one you're you're uh, praying for his intercession. I would think he was a very popular saint in the Middle Ages. He he kind of you know, waned in popularity. Um, you know over time your your saint thereses and your saint Francis's you know tend to tend to uh, pop up and and overtake these older medieval saints but there's there's still places all over the world named after saint leonard i think there's a town in maryland called saint leonard
0: so you know for for a time he was super popular the idea of being a patron saint of something is that just um is that around some of these stories that are about these particular saints of, of kind of some of their aspects of their lives. Yeah. It's and- usually something like, you know, if a Saint, you know, loses
2: an eye or something, he might become the, the patron Saint of, of the blind. Um, but also it's, you know, people have found it effective to ask for their inter- intercession for these things. So they found, um, some of these guys would, you know, sailors would invoke them, they they didn't necessarily They weren't necessarily you know sailors themselves, but for whatever reason, sailors would invoke their name. You know, if there was a bad storm, and I guess they found it worked, so it became a thing. So, you know, the, whatever the saint would become the patron saint against you know st- storms at sea, or something. So sometimes it's a matter of like people have found this effective. Often it's something that's reflected in their life. Like so for Saint Leonard, as uh, King Clovis told him he could release any prisoner he saw. I think it's it's an easily easy step from there to uh, making him the patron saint of prisoners.
1: And you go
0: beyond even like the saints lives to talk about people that have been affected by appealing to the saint. And I think in that episode, you even talk about a, a couple of people that were released from prison uh, because they invoked St. Leonard. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like in the later
2: saints, we actually have you know people's names and so forth. And I'm just uh, so that, yeah, they just said, like there was a nobleman who had a a, right. a dungeon in his tower and he captured one of saint leonard's disciples so there's no names given but they said like he was chained to a pillar and uh they kept completely in the dark and they said pay i think they said everyone who was put in this dungeon like died twice essentially they you know it's, it's a horrible place to be um but saint leonard appears to them in an apparition says you know fear not you will not die Arise up and bear thou this chain with me to my church. Follow me. So he stands up, his chains break, and he, he follows this apparition apparition out of the uh out of the dungeon and onto the church and you know adds his chain to the to the many that were there. So in these older accounts you don't necessarily get names in the in some of the newer ones that like the saints from the eighteen hundreds, you actually get this is this person's name, this is where they lived, this is what was cured, you know, so that, that happens uh with these with the later saints.
1: I know a lot of Protestants might see it differently, but Having a whole set of symbolism and this intermediary thing to, to focus a specific, you know, result or petition towards a higher power on is is very useful to people. So when you have these particular situations and saints that go along with them, um, just from like a spiritual technology perspective, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean, I can do the whole Catholic apologetics thing and, and argue this from a religious perspective, but that's... Let's not, and let's just say, let's just say, look at it like this. Like, um, take, take the Virgin Mary, for instance, you you guys worship the Virgin Mary. Well, no, we don't. We, we, we ask for her intercession. And the way I would put it is say, say you have your best friend and, and you would like to ask a favor from him and you're, you have a good relationship with his mom and maybe your friend is a little bit resistant to that favor. You might go to his mom and say, Hey, can you ask him? my friend here, uh to to help me with this with this effort. And it's very much like that. So these mm-hmm. it's like asking asking friends for help, you know, asking uh people who've already died for their prayers. Uh so yeah, it's it's I realize uh you know a lot of people say, wow ah, it's paganism. It's it's not. But uh, I, I can see where, where people would come to that conclusion. I, like I said, I'm not going to do the whole apologetics yeah, you know, yeah, no, thing.
1: Definitely don't expect you to do that. But there's a there's a certain accessibility, too, in that these these are people who had human stories and troubles and hardships. And, you know, for someone who's, like, critical of Christianity – you can see that maybe like a, a Christ figure or at the top of the Godhead might feel a little too holy. And like these are like actual human beings with stories that are really relatable. So it's a, it's a pretty good access point.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Absolutely. And even some of these later saints who we have like real detailed accounts of their lives, you know, they're, they're not perfect. You know, they yeah. they, these they weren't were the saints
1: thing. on their way to saint.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean they they've made some mistakes and they 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 did some some pretty rough things sometimes. But you know, sometimes it's about that turnaround, and sometimes it's about just recognizing, hey, you know, people are imperfect. Um, you you tend to lose some of that with some of the medieval saints, you know, everything they did was wonderful. But in, in some of the more modern saints, it's like, yeah, you know, people knew them and people remembered them and they will say like, yeah, you know, they, they, they weren't very kind about this, you know, or in this one instance, instance, they weren't very kind. And you get that real human element where you go, wow, this was a person. And yet they still did these, you know, amazing things and, and so forth. So, yeah, I, I think it's, it's very accessible
0: in that. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, St. Agatha. Now she, in this one, you chose like an early, this is early Christianity. This is early Christian martyr.
2: Yeah. I 231 this, was, yeah. was, the year she was born. Uh, this is during the, the Decian prosecution or persecution, rather Emperor Decius in the year 250. He institutes this law that basically says everybody in the Roman empire has to perform a sacrifice to the Roman gods, except Jewish people. For some reason, he, he uh, said, "Jewish people didn't have to do this, but everyone else." He said, "You have to perform a, perform a sacrifice, and you." They even had certificates. They would give people signed certificates saying, "You've you've completed this sacrifice," and you know, basically said, "You worship the Roman gods." Uh, they even have the wording to part of this the sacri- the uh, certificate. Uh, it says, "I have sacrificed to the gods all my life, and now again, in accordance with the decree, and in your presence." I have made sacrifice and poured a libation and partaken of the sacred victims. I request you certify this below. So these Roman officials would actually certify these, these accounts. Uh, of course, early Christians were very much at odds with this. They, they, they weren't going to do that. And that led to what they called the Decian persecution, which a lot of people got killed, including, uh, Pope Fabian was, was tortured and killed during that. So, Agatha's in the middle of this and she gets called she was in an area of Italy called Cantania and she was called by a man named Quint- Quintianus one thing I did bad for myself, get I got myself into a world of pronunciation woes with this podcast
1: yeah I bet it's,
2: it's Latin, it's French, it's old English, <laughs> yes. it's, it's all over the place with these saints and I'm I'm doing my best
0: this is what I hear a lot from history podcasters is needing to uh learn pronunciations so. yeah
2: yeah and like my best friend Prev, when the guy in stone with me he's a absolute like language master he worked on the uh, oxford book of medieval latin and knows i don't know how many celtic languages and stuff so i'm just like uh, i know he's listening and i'm i know he's just shaking his head going tim that's not how you say that That's <laughs> just i'm doing my best i'm doing my best anyway so anyway this uh, the governor of that area his name was quintianus and uh, he has Agatha brought before him, and they think he was probably just going to use this this uh, decree to take her land because she came from a rich Christian family. And mm-hmm. well, okay, I can get her possessions, I can get her land.
0: Opportunistic type of thing. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah she's not going to do this. He, you know, he knows that these Christians aren't going to aren't going to you know sign this decree. They're not going to make these sacrifices. So he's like, well, I'll I'll be able to just take her property. But supposedly, when he saw her, he's he's struck with beauty, with her beauty, and he's like, Oh, I'm gonna, you know, I want her. So he makes these advances on her, she refuses, he ends up sending her to a brothel. Uh at the brothel, she she will not work, she will not prostitute herself, and she's completely unyielding. So they they send her back to Quintianus. Um and Let's see. Um, she has these wonderful uh, comebacks to him. I'm looking for one. Okay. So so she refuses to become a prostitute. She refuses to, to yield to Quintiana's demands. And she says, My courage and my thought be so firmly founded upon the stone of Jesus Christ that no pain may change it. Your words be but wind. Your promises be but rain. Your menaces be as rivers that pass. No matter how much all these things hurtle at the foundation of my courage it shall not move so then he starts to you know uh warn her that that he's going to torture her he threatens her and she refuses to make the offerings refuses to pray the pagan gods and he throws her in prison brings her out again says how is your health she says Christ is my health and he replies deny Christ by which you may escape your torments. And she comes back, says, Nope. Deny your idols of stone and wood and adore your maker made heaven and earth. If you do not, you shall be tormented in the perpetual fire of hell. He doesn't like that. Has her stretched on a rack and whipped burnt with torches torn with iron hooks is a really brutal story. (laughs) Her story is really, really brutal. Um, And he says, refuse your vain opinions and you shall be eased of your pain. And she refuses to yield again. And then uh, he crushes her breasts. I don't know how I'm guessing with heavy stones and then cuts them from her body. Mm -hmm. Absolutely horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. And she just says, cruel man, have you forgotten your mother and the breasts that nourished you that you dare mutilate me this way? So uh, she doesn't have a super pretty (laughs) uh, story here, but she, she doesn't give in, you know, she, she uh, stands up to him and, uh, ends up being thrown in prison and she has an apparition that comes to her and and heals her which which she believes was saint peter that came and healed her and she ends up being the uh she once again he brings her out of the prison he sees she's healed he's like he he had forbid any doctors or anybody to go to her and he says how did you heal how were you healed and she basically says well god healed me so then he throws her on coals and Back into prison she eventually just like i'm i had enough you know she's been tortured essentially to death she dies in prison but she becomes the patron saint of breast cancer uh obviously for the for you know those reasons rape victims against fire against earthquakes patron saint of nurses of bell founders for some reason i don't know why uh, people make bells but that's that's that torture victims sicily palermo malta and natural disasters so she gets a lot of of uh patronage there uh but yeah her her veil was supposedly would they would march around the town when there was uh threats of volcanoes or earthquakes and they, they said her veil would stop you know just stop these storms and earthquakes and stuff in their
0: in their path i think you mentioned this in that episode there's an interesting uh tradition with this like these pastries oh yeah, yeah yeah so i was looking at like so i'm
2: looking at the artwork and I'm like you know for inspiration and stuff how am i going to portray her and the medieval images of her have basically she's holding her cut off breasts on a on a plate and it's so like i don't know there's something about that that's so kind of like ugh to me yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah like i don't want to draw that but uh-huh. they said in medieval times they they didn't know what what those images were they didn't know what she was carrying and they thought it was loaves of bread so they there's uh this tradition comes of, of blessing loaves of bread on uh, on saint Agnes' feast day so people will bring two loaves of bread on a plate essentially to the priest and he will bre- uh, bless the bread and they think it comes from those those icons of her that showed her you know holding her own breasts and people just didn't know what she
0: was holding on those on his plates could you explain a little bit about the feast day concept because this is apparently very important in the calendar
2: yeah it's it's a date it's it's often their birthday if we know it or the day they were martyred if we know it or the day they died and it is the day that we observe these these saints lives it's it's um it's not a feast as in a meal it's just a feast as a as a celebration day so that's you know how they choose them like i said sometimes it's their birthday sometimes it's their death day i i don't know exactly how they choose them but but that's essentially all it is that's when we we celebrate these different saints and you'll have you know sometimes five or ten on a day if you look at like butler's lives of the saints it's a you know very popular yeah. book on saints there's you know five or ten saints for for some days
0: that's what i was gonna ask whether or not whether it's like a it overlaps it, it'll it be like you know yeah. if, if
2: if you share a, if you're a saint that shares a you know saint francis feast day you're probably going to not going to get much attention you know <laughs>
0: Something that caught my eye on the article here about about uh, Agatha. It said uh, it's a translation of her relics. Do you know what that means? Uh, where they were taken, usually. Is commemorated on 10th March and 17th August. And that's August 17th, that's my birthday. Just throwing it just out there.
2: There you go. Yeah, that probably like, means nothing. But. It's uh, maybe when her relics were taken um, from, from her place of uh, burial and taken to some church or another there was a big market for relics in the middle ages huge they even fought like some of these towns would end up fighting battles against each other for possession of these relics because you know the if you had it was like tourists you know if you had the relics in your church people would people would come they would make pilgrimage to the church in your town and you know bring money with them and and so forth so there was uh it was business in the middle ages you know unfortunately and they got into some some pretty pitched battles over some of these relics sometimes
0: yeah, there were a lot of pieces of the true cross.
2: Yes, and I always thought, like, so I had heard, before I knew how this worked, I had heard, like, if you had put all the so-called pieces of the true cross together, you could make something like, you know, 50 or 100 crosses, and there's there's way <laughs> too many. But uh, it was explained to me by Brother Richard that there's a specific ritual in the Catholic Church that uh, when you touch, you can make a, a relic that that looks just like another relic. And you can touch them together and y- y- you do this ritual and you're essentially saying this is that relic now. you know this has all the attributes of that relic. You, you make it look the same, you touch them, you do this this ritual, and that's how there's so many pieces of the true cross. That's how that that happens.
1: Oh okay. It's like a transubstantiation.
2: Yeah, it's like yeah, it's like uh um, tag you're it, you know
0: <laughs> there was yeah, it's a transference of power. Mm-hmm. basically that's interesting
2: there's a uh yeah i always liken it to a, a game my friend told me he played when he was little it's, it didn't have a very nice name was, we'll call it a poopy stick and uh basically they, they if you had a stick that you stuck it in in uh cat poo but anything that stick touched was essentially that forever tainted with you know with, with cat poo this right. so is kind of like the nice version of,
0: of the poopy stick so the next two i believe really kind of go together and, and you mentioned this uh this is saint gabriel of our lady of sorrows mm-hmm. and uh it yeah jimma
2: Gemma galgani yeah
0: jimma galgani that, that one was particularly interesting uh but let's talk about saint gabriel because with this we're kind of getting there's this order that comes up in both of these called the passionists Mm -hmm. And we could probably could explain kind of what that is too. There's just all these different, there's all these different orders and of monks and nuns and yeah, it's a little confusing
2: who the saint was that established the Passionists. but uh, they're, yeah, they're, they're a order that is particularly dedicated to um, the the passion of, of Christ, essentially the the crucifixion and uh, the, the pains he suffered during crucifixion and, and, you know of course the resurrection um and i forget the saint that established that order but yeah they're they're, all of the cross is what this is all of the cross you know so you have your franciscans you have your you know your passionists these are just different sort of orders within the catholic church that have uh certain um areas of specialist uh, specialism i guess you would say you know and and different uh areas of interest and so forth the passionists were known at least back then were known to be a particularly um kind of uh extreme uh, sect they you know they were um uh how to put it kind of uh very strict in in their beliefs and in, in their orders and so forth so if you were if you were a passionist you that was a a, a pretty rough row a hoe at least back then i'm not sure how they are now um pretty serious way it's like now we have the there's a um uh carmelite monastery uh for carmelite nuns not far from here they're building uh, a stone monastery in the in the fashion of these old european monasteries that there's a very cool documentary on it on youtube i think it's called to last a thousand years and you can see them they're just building this place and they, they want it to last a thousand years. And, but they're a good example. They're, they're um, decalcified. So they don't wear shoes. They don't have any modern conveniences. They have wood heating, they grow all their own food and so forth. And, you know, this is today. So you can imagine, you know, some of these orders back in the 1800s when this was. um, So Francesco, uh, he becomes Saint Gabriel of, Our Lady of Soros. He's born Francesco Pacenti. He's actually baptized in the same baptismal font that Saint Francis of Assisi uh, was christened in. So he kind of has that going for him from birth. But, uh, you know, he's growing up in Italy in the mid 1800s. So he's, he's born 1838. And he is called from a very early age to to uh, be religious as a religious, as they say, to be a priest or a monk. And he's known as a good student, but he's also known as you know very vain. So he he's uh, very into nice clothes and and uh, you know being looking nice. And at one point, he's engaged to two different women at the same time. He's you know very appreciated by the fair sex. He got this nickname called the dancer. Uh, so he's very kind of, you know, out there in the world. He lives this, you know, pr- before he becomes religious, he lives a you know pretty worldly life. At the age of 14, he becomes seriously ill. And he... Everybody in
1: your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
2: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pray for the intercession of the Blessed Virgin. He says, you know, if you cure me, I promise I'll join a religious order. Please cure me. Please cure me. Please cure me. How much have we heard this before? He's cured. And he's like, oh, well, I'm okay now. You know, and he, he goes on about his life. Then he's on a hunting expedition. He's narrowly missed by a bullet, which scares him. And he again, he renews this promise. He says, Okay, I'm, i promise I'm gonna, I'm gonna join a religious order. And then soon enough, back to the secular world, he forgets. You know, he's a teenager at this point. Who can blame him? Right? He wanna have fun. Um, at 16, he's afflicted with a throat abscess, which is caused the severe inflammation in his throat. In one night he can hardly breathe. He's like his throat's closing up. And he remembers, this, he has a picture of St. Andrew Bobola that's given to him by one of his teachers. He wraps that image around his neck and prays for the saint's intercession. And uh, that night, he falls asleep, so just falls into an easy slumber, wakes up in the morning, he can breathe. He, he says the inflammation is almost completely gone. He's able to breathe easily. On the picture, of this saint is like this little stain that he always, he thought was some kind of indication of like, I don't know if it, he felt it was the whatever was being drawn out of him but he he noted that there's a stain on the picture and he felt better like an indication of the favor granted he applies to the jesuit order at at this time he's like okay but he's accepted and then delays his promise he goes well um you know some other time so his brother dies his other brother commits suicide in 1855, there's a cholera outbreak in Spoleto, the town he's living in at the time, which claims the life of his older sister. And the cathedral there had this icon of the Virgin Mary that they they turned out in the, in the loggia, it's the part of the cathedral that faces out. And they put it facing the, the city square. And they said as soon as they put this icon out, there's no more cases of cholera. Every, you know, and the people that w- remain sick were supposedly cured at this point so they they have this uh procession they plan this procession and they're you know marching through the streets and they're singing hymns and they they have this icon they're marching with it and uh Francis is out there and he's you know wants to see the the procession and as he sees this uh icon of the Blessed Virgin he kind of locks eyes with it and he said that the gaze just seemed to like pierce his heart and he hears this voice an, an inner voice which you know locution what we would call it a a voice from heaven that uh, no one else hears he just hears it internally and it's it's mary admonishing him she's saying why thou art not made for this world what are thou doing in the world hasten become a religious and he falls to his knees after hearing this he he knows he's you know he's promised he's made these promises and and not fulfilled them again and again and he the crowd passes and he's just still on his knees, that's just crying. And uh at this point, he's this is the final thing for him. He's he's now now I have to do this, you know. He's given this this final message. So um he goes off and his his father kind of makes fun of him. You're like, You're not gonna do this. You like you like nice clothes and, and fancy stuff. You there's no way you're gonna do this. And his father enlists some of the relatives to help try to dissuade him and he he won't have it he goes off and uh, joins the passionist order he when he was 18 years old uh two days later they they give him the habit the the outfit of, of the passionist the robe and so forth and he gets a new name gabriel of our lady of sorrows because of his uh devotion to the virgin mary and a year later he says his vows he's he's in the order and uh he's basically known as this excellent student and like everyone's really impressed by everything but he very shortly thereafter he gets tuberculosis and uh kind of accepts it this time he doesn't bargain you know say oh please heal me and i'll do this this and this he just kind of accepts it he accepts his fate and it ends up taking his life but the uh the other people in his order are so impressed by the way he just sort of accepts this and and uh becomes this example form that they said even though he's you know potentially contagious just everybody wanted to be with him that he just accepted it with such grace and so forth so he uh he has a vision of, of what they assume was mary at the end of his life because he, he kind of sits up and reaches for something and then pretty much falls back dead and his uh he has a spiritual advisor who said basically made this comment uh, consumed by the ardor of divine love rather than by the violence of disease comforted and wrapped in ecstasy by the apparition of his heavenly mother whom he loved with an immeasurable affection he was sweetly received by her and laden with merits left for heaven. So I guess they're assuming that's what he saw. I don't think he he had the ability at the last moments of his life to say oh I'm seeing Mary you know or anything but I I, I guess they're that's kind of what they they assume he saw. The interesting thing is he didn't have any miracles in his life he didn't he didn't cure anybody he didn't do anything uh he didn't have a lot of contact with people but it's all of his miracles occur after he's died so these are all people that go to him or go to his tomb and appeal to him they're they're praying for his intercession and some of them are given some of his relics and he's uh cured a number of people like i said he uh somebody was cured of deafness by sprinkling some of his grave dust in his ear um people were cured of blindness from like touching his tomb with with a handkerchief and and rubbing their eyes uh hernias he cured a lot of people's hernias he's the guy to pray to if you have a hernia um so you know just the number of people I think in the episode I did about half of the ones they had in the book I was reading I mean, it's just got to be too many because the whole episode couldn't be just me listing off people he had cured. But uh, yeah, he just a lot, a lot of people were, were cured uh, miraculously by his intercession. And that's what led, I think, to
0: his, his becoming a saint. So, yeah, the miracles were first and then the posthumous kind of miracles were first.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say and, and a lot of people would attest to that, you know. Um, including, so he wasn't a saint. He was, I think he was, he wasn't even, he might've been beatified by the time St. Gemma Galgani came along, but he wasn't a saint for sure. And she was, uh, she was reading about him and he, he showed up and performed a miracle
0: in her life, which,
2: which leads us to St. Gemma.
0: There's an interesting aspect to hers, the demonic oppression. Yeah. That is a part of it. And the demonic apparitions and all this. Listening to this last night, I was very much reminded of Annalise Michelle. That case is the one that Exorcism of Emily Rose was based off of.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Similar, you know, I mean, people that claim that they've had healings at her grave and these type of things. I've heard this. There's a veneration there as well.
2: Yeah. There's this theory that the closer you get to God the more the devil's going to torment you. And I don't know if this is true in all cases, but if we take her story, and the way I pieced together her story was from about three or four different sources. One of them was from her spiritual advisor, Father Germanus. There was another biography written about her by, um, let's see, um, another priest named Father Amadio uh called blessed gemma galgani so again that was written before she was uh canonized as a saint uh she wrote an autobiography as some of it was taken from that and some was taken from you know some later um biographies of her so i pieced together you know the the, what i felt was the most interesting parts of her life from these various biographies and if we are to believe this it's certainly held up that she was she was blessed with these wonderful apparitions but she was also tormented like really torment like physically tormented by this demonic stuff um you know there's other books that have been written about her that basically said she was a manipulative uh kind of a crazy person um i i think it would be easy to say that about a lot of people who've experienced paranormal things and in fact people have said that about people who've experienced paranormal things you know uh, any number of people have had hauntings and so forth people said oh well they're just they're crazy or they're they're mani- manipulating people they want attention these are all things i've heard about strange familiars guests right so i tend to think of hers yeah she she was likely imperfect she she wasn't you know uh she was a human so you know she's she's i'm sure she had some imperfections but i look at her life as a whole and you get to see a pretty incredible picture and it's like people say with you know if any part of it is true we have a a massive miracle much less if you if you take her life as a whole and uh, she had a really really incredible life um she's born in lucca italy in 1878 uh she's got a very short life by the way she, she lives to 20 or 21 i think um in her in her early 20s um she's her mother dies when she's very young her mother was kind of responsible for her uh spiritual upbringing she hears a voice during mass it was her first locution And she gets a voice that she said she described it as a voice in her heart, which asked her, will you give me your mama? And she said, yes, if you take me also. And the the voice answered, said, no, you must give unreservedly your mother. You have to wait with your father. I'll take you to heaven later. And she supposedly gave a resigned. Yes, her mother dies a few months later of tuberculosis. So this is this kind of like, Sad beginning of her life, and and part of me, like reading her as a human being, like just looking at her as a human, it seems like she has this longing to get back to her mother from from this point on, and she knows her way to get back to her mother is to go to heaven, right? She she assumes her mother's in heaven, so she decides she from a very young age she starts asking the Virgin Mary, like make me a saint, because. You know, just on a psychological level, to me, it seems like she's just trying to get back to her mother, right? She her mother was such made such a huge impression on her. And she says she never really connected with anybody else in her family the way she connected with her mom. So I think, you know, if you want to remove religion and talk about psychology, I think that might be a, a factor in her life. But uh she tries to live this very pious life from a very young age she's very attentive to religion and uh as a young person she's you know it's pretty amazing um she gets these sicknesses she has a foot infection at one point and she's bedridden for months and months and uh they surgery is required and this is something that's in in her autobiography but i never i just didn't get into it too much it just Didn't kind of interrupt the flow of the podcast, but she was very um, upset at the idea that anyone would have to look at her unclothed body or to touch her unclothed body. She was very, very uh, worried about that. So she would go with these injuries and these infections and stuff, and just not tell anybody for a really, really long time till they get really bad. And I think that happened with this this whatever uh, foot injury she had. She had an infection. Eventually, they said you have to have surgery. She doesn't want to be put under in any way, uh, w- whatever form of anesthesia they had at the time, which I think wasn't much, but she wanted to be in control of her body the whole time. She wanted to keep it an, and kind of guard over her own body. So she goes into these surgeries without anesthesia. And they said she would just like focus on the crucifix. And then they said, she would just bear the pain. So she'd, just, she'd moan a little bit. And that's all you'd hear from her. They're actually doing surgery on her. Um, she heals she's you know she's kind of bouncing around from her aunts back to her father's house and so forth her father loves her her father just pours attention on her and gives her these gifts and her whole family kind of really wants her to be this like regular kid like you know go out and have fun be a kid and she's again she's very serious about religion she only wants to really go to mass and and pray and so forth but her father you know showers her with gifts he's fairly wealthy and at one point he gives her a gold watch and chain, and she's you know walking around very proudly displaying this, this chain, and she comes home and and she sees her guardian angel, who she saw on multiple occasions. Uh a number of saints can end up seeing their guardian angels, which is very interesting. Um, Padre Pio, uh, if you know who he is, he's a he's a later saint. I think he died in the yeah. 60s. Uh, he was able to see and talk to his guardian angel, and in fact, see other people's guardian angels who would bring him messages. So this
0: is very interesting that, uh, St.
2: Gemma had this as well.
0: Do they name these guardian angels or do they just say this is the guardian angel? There's not a specific, you're not supposed to name your guardian angel. Hmm. Um, there is,
2: uh, except for, the, you, there's some, we'll, we'll get into this in the, in the Christmas show and strange familiar. So we'll, we'll talk about this cause we're doing it on angels. But, um, the way i understand it is is you are not supposed to name your angels because that's a that's an occultism thing like when you name something you have power over it. and even in the bible when the, there's certain passages in the bible where these angels appear and people are like oh tell us who you are so we can we can worship you and the angels are like no like why are you asking for my name no that's that's not it you're not I, it's not about me kind of thing so um and this is something I've learned very recently. So you're not really supposed to name your guardian angel. you are not supposed to ask them their name. And this has to do with, uh, the, with, uh, demons as well. Cause they can take the form of, of these miraculous, wonderful looking things. And, uh, once they realize that there's names involved and stuff and that you can get into trickery, there, there's a whole thing with it. So no, she did not know her guardian angels name and she referred to him only as her guardian angel. Um, so anyway, she's, she returns home. She sees her guardian angel as she's taking this jewelry off, and he kind of admonishes her. And he says, remember, the precious jewelry that adorns the spouse of a crucified king can only be thorns in the cross. And at that point, she she takes off the jewelry. She puts it away and never puts it on again. She uh, would only wear uh, very, very simple plain wool garments from then on. She, again, she took this very, very seriously from a very young age which is interesting like when you want to just say oh she was just crazy Well, like she is devoted to this from a young age um she starts getting these apparitions and locutions frequently Uh, they come to her uh like once after holy communion she has this conversation with Jesus she says like why didn't you take me to paradise again I think she has this longing to go where her mother went and he says, I will give thee many occasions of greater merit in this life. Through the, I increased longing for heaven while bearing patiently the pains on earth. Uh, her father dies. The, these creditors come and basically take everything the family owned. Uh, so she's kind of moves in with a wealthy aunt for a while. Uh, while there, this is in another town called Camiure in Italy. One of the wealthiest families in the area, one of their sons becomes interested in her and like, Proposes marriage, and she wants nothing to do with that. And she, so she just leaves. She's just peace, like I'm, I'm out of here. She doesn't want any trouble with this guy or with the, for, with her aunt. You know, any pressure from her to marry this guy. So she returns to her father's house, and uh, she's afflicted at this point with this really wicked illness. Um, I'll read a passage. This is from uh, Father uh, Germanus' book uh, called "The Life of Saint Gemma Galgani." This child of heaven began to feel worse, developing a curvature of the spine. An alarming attack of meningitis set in, together with a total loss of hearing. Large abscesses formed in her head, one of which seemed to make its way down through her chest and settled in her side. Then her hair fell off. Finally, her limbs became paralyzed. A consultation of learned medical men was held, and from the first it became evident that hers was a very serious case of spine disease and probably incurable they uh they cauterized her spine at some point again she took no no anesthesia for this such as was available you know at the time uh all of these remedies failed and she just suffered for a really really long period of time she was 20 years old at this point um throughout her illness she's she's still getting these apparitions her guardian angels talking to her saying you know if jesus afflicts thee corpally, in other words in your body he does it to purify you more and more so be good and then the devil starts appearing to her and he says you know in these various forms uh i think they said he appears as like a black monkey as a giant as a furious man for someone who writes books on bigfoot all of these things are going on
0: yeah the black monkey thing is interesting yeah
2: yeah, yeah, I'm going. I'm going. Why? Why didn't I uh, knew this information when I was writing Where the footprints then? But in any case, that you know, the, she's tempted. You know, the the devil's saying like, just follow me, and I'll not only I'll heal you, but I'll give you her every desire. And she, she, uh, you know, says no. You know, refuses him or whatever. And at one point, she's given this biography of Saint Gabriel of Our Lady of Sorrows, uh, the same one I used actually for for a source for my episode not the the actual book but you know the same text and she said she didn't care to read it at first she kind of said it there and she's like you know uh it just didn't hum for her i guess at the time but then uh she started reading his biography and she felt closer and closer to him uh he he is a very attractive saint in in as much as like his story is, is very accessible i think and i think she she feels resonance with him and she begins to sleep with his picture under her pillow. And then she starts to see him in visions. And he says, you know, I, I don't know how to explain it, but I feel his presence near me. Like at all times during this, during the sickness, Uh, January 4th, 1899, her doctors made one last attempt to save her life. Surgery was uh, performed on the abscess in her side. Her spine was cauterized. She again, refuses to take anesthesia. I can't imagine that kind of pain. I I woke up in the middle of surgery one time, and it was ridiculous. And it was just hernia surgery. It was not my spine surgery.
0: I'm trying to imagine what cauterizing a spine would even yeah look like. Or I don't even what are they trying to do? I don't I don't even.
2: I yeah. Or just you know maybe kill these these abscesses that are moving yeah. up and down. spine. I don't I don't know what they're doing you know whatever it is it sounds well any medical procedure in in the 1890s was horrifying
0: what was anesthetic probably ether i mean that's probably what we're talking about
2: yeah exactly so but even that she refuses this the the operations only seem to make it worse as you can imagine i don't know if you what was that show you ever watched the the nick i think it was called Was it based on the Knickerbocker Hospital in New York in the I think it was in the eighteen nineties or early nineteen hundreds? Yeah, I never. These medical procedures talking about it. They're they're horrifying, like just horrifying medical procedures at the time. Um, anyway, um, one of her visitors begs her to make a novena, which is a uh, so this would be a devotion over nine days. So, a novena is like a nine day uh, prayer cycle. So, you repeat this this sort of prayer cycle to saint uh, margaret mary Alacoque, and she begins this novena and she's kind of like all right i'll give it a try her heart really wasn't in it but then saint gabriel of our lady of sorrows appears to her and says, "You're like do you want to recover and she says we're gonna i'm gonna appear to you every night and we're gonna pray this novena together so she's, she, he comes to her and, and every night they pray this on the ninth day She hears the voice of Jesus again says, do you wish to recover? She's too weak to reply. And she said this, she answers in her heart. She answered whatever you will at two o'clock in the afternoon on March 3rd. So it's precisely nine days. You know, the, the novena last, she finishes the novena two o'clock in the afternoon. I think it's the following day. Um, she gets up out of bed, fully healed. So there were a ton of people. There were people coming to visit her to see her because they couldn't believe like this young woman was like facing this horrible sickness with such bravery and stuff. She's she's healed. She's completely healed. She gets up and healed. There's servants, there her, her family's around. Everyone's just like, what is going on? So it's pretty interesting. Like there's a lot of witnesses to this, this miraculous healing. And she credits, you know, St. Gabriel, uh, or at least his intercession, uh, for that um after this however it seems like these these apparitions just start coming hard and fast uh one after another she would often see and speak to her guardian angel but now she starts going into these ecstatic states they they could occur anywhere she could be walking down the street and i don't know if so ecstatic states is like these visionaries will fall into this almost like hypnotic state um there are films of some uh of the more modern uh seers and stuff that go into these ecstatic states. And so you can imagine by looking at these films, it was the same thing. They will poke these people with pins, they'll burn them with matches. They do not react. They are in another place. There is they will drop, pick them up and drop them like really hard on the ground. They were kind of really rough with these with these seers and they do not react. They're in another place when they're in these ecstatic states. It's very, very interesting. So she would go into these ecstatic states anywhere at any time she would fall into in the middle of a conversation walking down the street she just anywhere she'd go into these ecstatic uh, states even um she was given communion uh during some of these visions which again these some of these other seers have reported doing at fatima the seers took communion from an angel <clears throat> excuse me get a drink of water so um she would Take communion. Uh, they'd, they'd see her kneel and and clasp her hands, put out her tongue, and then withdraw it. And uh, they asked her at some point, like, "Who's giving you communion?" She said it was an apparition of Jesus that was actually giving her communion. She was experienced ecstatic levitation. Again, this is something that that you find in uh, various saints, and and again, some of these these modern uh, visionaries. And people, people witness
0: witnessed. did people witness the levitation, like actually mm-hmm. see her levitate?
2: um gemma i i don't think anybody witnessed her but some of these modern ones they they pe- right. like crowds of people have witnessed levitation um she levitated two times I, I believe both times she was like there was this life-size crucifix they said in in their home and she was like just obsessed with um uh, the blood of Jesus. She's very, very obsessed with it, and and she would want to kiss Jesus's wounds, and it, and she would be sort of lifted up, supernaturally lifted up, so she could kiss these wounds. And and at one time the you know the Christ on the cross kind of comes alive and reaches out to her, and and uh, she's drinking the blood from his side, which is you know, it's, it's pretty uh, pretty bloody stuff. Her, hers is a pretty bloody story, and, and all in all. Yeah, there's um, a
1: lot
0: of stigmata involved. Here yeah, too.
2: yeah. So yeah, so soon after this, she's she's gets this vision of um, Jesus, where instead of bloods coming from his wounds, there's fire coming from uh, his wounds, and she feels burning in her wrist, burning in her side, burning in her feet, and she comes out of this ecstatic state with stigmata, with the wounds of Christ. They're they're bleeding profusely. She would get it repeatedly. She would get it these on Thursday. They would start at Thursday evening. They would continue till f- till three p.m. on Friday, and then they would start to heal up by Saturday or Sunday. Every week, the wounds were healed. So I don't know how someone in like so we could fake this with modern special effects, but I don't know how someone in the eighteen hundred fakes
0: this. Well, isn't that in line too with? jesus is arrested on the thursday the the passion starts on that time he is crucified at 3 p.m on friday i I, I guess according to the tradition that this is yeah that that's in line with the suffering of christ yeah yeah saturday he's in the grave and you know so it's it slowly stops yeah
2: reenacting his passion like every week essentially and they said there was so much blood, like just people were like, the people who lived with her were freaking out. Like, where is all this blood coming from? Um, now her family weren't 100% with this. Like after a time, they're like, okay, enough. Stop messing around, stop this. And her her aunts, you know, her parents are both dead at this point. Her aunts who so she's living with are like threatening her. It's like, you show me where this blood is coming from. Show me how you're faking this. They're not convinced at all. And they're having the servants follow her around and, you know, try to figure out how she's doing this. So even her whole family is trying to out her. They're trying to figure out how she's doing this. She, you know, if she's able to pull this off, she's a a lot of people will look at these saints and stuff and say, well, you could do that with slate of hand and you could do that with this, this, and this. Well, okay, but this is 1899. This is, you know, a girl in Italy. She didn't have access to YouTube. How is she learning, you know, this master slate of hand with a coupled with Hollywood special effects in order to do this? Just seems a lot. Especially when everybody in her house, that everybody she's living with is, is trying to find her out. They're trying to like figure out how she's doing this. They they don't believe her. You know, the example I use is like, you know, like when Jesus says a prophet is not without honor, except in his native place, his own house, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. It's the idea that like the people around you are like, they're not, they're not ready for this. They're not going to believe that, you know in jesus hometown he was just a carpenter like what this guy's doing what he's the carpenter's son you know
0: nothing good can come from nazareth that yeah
2: yeah so um they're trying to find her out but she's like nobody can find her out and they have people come and investigate these wounds um there's a Passionist priest named father cachetan who came and he said I, the understand, this is a testimony. He said, I, the undersigned, hereby testify and declare that in July 1899, I saw certain extraordinary wounds on the hands of the young girl, Gemma Galgani. In the inside, that is in the palms, there was seen a raised piece of flesh like the head of a nail, about as large as a half penny. At the back of each hand, there was somewhat deep laceration that seemed to have been caused by, the blunt, uh, by a blunt nail forced through the hand from the opposite side. I, and those with me, had no hesitation in saying that those were the stigmata, which could not have come from any natural cause. In fact, we saw her hands on Thursday, free from any marks. On Friday morning, we found them as we have described. We examined them again on Saturday and found no mark except a small reddish cicatrix, which is like a little scar, you know, a little little mark. Um, on other occasions, she would sweat blood. She would cry blood. Her clothes, they said, would just be completely soaked with blood. They They said eventually she starts manifesting the wounds of the scourging so she she has like breeding bleeding stripes and then the next week they're deeper and they said that by the third week they said you could almost see the bones below beneath her flesh they are like they're they're so deep and again these would heal these would these would heal without infection by sunday they'd be healed so uh eventually i think her spiritual advisor's like you know she should pray to maybe have the stigmata stop because it's like a lot <laughs> you know like people don't know what to do with you you're, you're just like bleeding through her bedclothes constantly and so she she does pray and it does stop but then uh she would she would spit up blood then and she said like she just it was as if she had to give give this blood up one way or another and uh she she would issue great quantities of blood from her mouth they said like just at uh, the point where people were like oh my god like how is this person alive uh, and she you know that's that she said uh, i cannot give thee blood from other parts of my body i give it the, to thee from my heart so they looked at her heart after she died it was swollen it was really weird they said it was like wider than it was long it was looked like it had been flattened out and in life they said her heart beat so hard and violently it looked like it pushed out uh, some of her ribs three of her ribs on her left side were almost at a right angle pushed out so something really weird was going on with her heart wow yeah <laughs> yeah um so this you know this goes on uh she ends up moving out from her family. Her family relationship becomes very contentious. She ends up moving in with another family who's, who sort of adopts her as, as their daughter. The Giannini family continues to have these different, uh, you know, apparitions and stuff. At one point, Father Germanus, he's trying to get her to write down her life story. And she's he knows she's too humble. She's not going to do it. So she he says, I want you to write a full confession of your life sins. And she, he knows she'll do that. Uh, because she thought it's so funny. If you read her biography, she thinks she's this horrible sinner. Like this, you, you can't imagine. Like, and her, her sin is like, you know, I was mean to a guy once. You know, <laughs> it's like I was rude to a person, and th- she thinks she's like this awful sinner in, in in her own writing. So she's writing about you know how what a horrible sinner she is, and she finishes this manuscript. She gives it to uh, Mother Giannani, the, Giannini, the Gianini, rather the woman she's living with. She puts it in a drawer a few days later she sees this which she described as a chuckling demon crawl through the window and then in the room in which the the her biography was stored in this in this drawer and then he disappears and the same entity appears her sh- to her a short time later and says war war thy book is in my hands and they check the drawer where they had put it and it's gone the book is missing uh they they write a letter to father germanus and he decides he's 400 miles away in another town in italy and he decides well i'm going to perform an exorcism and just see what happens he does this afterwards the book is found once again in the drawer where they had left it but the pages are singed all the way around and they're like blackened with smoke you can see this book by the way if you go online this book exists and uh it's it's the book that has passed through hellfire they say yeah. so it's was brought back to her so you can you can actually see pictures of it there's film of it there's at least one youtube like uh uh story of her life kind of thing where you can they actually film the book you kind of see them they turn a few pages you can actually see it it's pretty interesting um but she is tormented by these demons they they appear to her at one time in the middle of winter and you know says like i'm basically this demon says i'm going to get you no matter what like you're going to give in to me And she runs and like jumps in the freezing water in the garden. Somebody, you know, they say like a some kind of hand reached in and pulled her out, like presumably a a hand from heaven or something. But she was, um, she would be writing, and she'd have the pen, the pen snatched from her hand. The the you know these demonic entities would tear up the paper. They would drag her around by her hair, like tearing her hair out of the scalp. She'd be beaten, bitten, like like kicked to the ground, clawed and uh they, they said these would sometimes last all night like you could hear her just being beaten all night long by these things um the priest father germanus did see uh in the form of a black cat one day it came into the room while he was there and he sees this this uh big black cat come in and like start hissing at her sitting at stand at the edge of her bed and he's like Completely freaked out, and she just said to him calmly, "Don't be afraid. It's that demon who wants to annoy me, but don't fear; he won't do you any harm." The priest said he sprinkles holy water, and the thing just dis- disappears. So, you know, more than her uh, witnessed these things. So she was she was absolutely brutalized by these demonic entities. So, at one point towards the end of her life, she does ask for an exorcism. She she feels like she's possessed because this is happening so much. Uh, she wants to join. She wants to become a nun. She wants to join the Passionist Order. Once uh, she she learns of Saint Gabriel and learns he's a Passionist, I think. I think she she becomes like she's like that. Those are my people. So uh, she applies to a Passionist convent, and she's got you know pretty bad health. She's had all these these bad health conditions, and this reputation as a mystic precedes her. And the mother superior was like, "Nah," At which you can understand. It might be kind of a distraction. For other people in the community, so even though Father Germanus and and some her confessor and these other people are writing letters like you know please take her, this uh, Mother Superior is like nah, I don't think she's a good fit, so she li- basically begins to live as a nun, like outside of the cloister. She takes the same vows of chastity, p- poverty, and obedience. She wears the Passionist symbol underneath her clothes. Uh, she recites the what they call the Divine Office of prayers daily uh just as the Passionist nuns did and she she prays that the order will set up a convent in luca where she lives with hopes that like maybe if there's one in her hometown she can join but she gets this this final illness which is it becomes pretty clear that she's not going to recover from this and she actually says uh the passionists will not receive me on earth for all i wish to be with them but i will be so when i'm dead jesus has the habit of a Passionist nun waiting for me at the gates of heaven um she is completely accepted as a passionist now like the order kind of embraced her as one of their own so she was kind of right you know after death mm-hmm. she's absolutely accepted as a passionist uh her her last sickness just last nine months she couldn't taste food she's got pains she's stuck in bed she would still get into these ecstatic est- uh states um one time a priest comes to bring her communion she's she like she's the priest is like what should i do because father germanus is there he's like give her communion she'll do the right thing and she's like in this ecstatic state the, the priest brings over communion she snaps out of the ecstatic state takes communion boom right back into her ecstatic state so this, it must have been pretty amazing to watch um she gets again she's she's having these heavenly visions but also these these you know demonic visions at the same time that are coming and it's just uh, sounds like absolute torture. You know, she's sick already. She's in bed. And uh, the the people that were caring for her, there's a quote I'm trying to find. Um, yeah, so, so one of the, the nurses in attendance was talking about these assaults. And she said, the abominable beast will be the end of her. Deafening blows, forms of ferocious animals. I came away from her in tears because the demon is wearing her out. There's no remedy for it. So they said her food would, even when she could eat, like her food right before her eyes would turn into the disgusting, like just covered with disgusting insects and stuff and make it look disgusting. So uh, she's nine months she finds that she uh, is in her final sickness. And uh, about five days before her death, she manifests this supernatural weight. Now, she's at this point, she is literally skin and bones. She's not been able to eat much at all. She And f- she couldn't be lifted by a single person. They said it took three workmen to, in unison to move her. So she develops this, this supernatural weight, which you hear again with some of these modern visionaries, some of these Marian apparitions. Uh, they will be little girls, like age 10, and grown men can't pick them up. They'll have grown men come in and, and like try to lift them. In fact, one of the girl's father's, like one, there was a guy who uh, came to Garabandal, and he was kind of a doubter. And one of the girls' fathers, was like, go ahead, try to lift her up. This is a you know, grown man and a ten-year-old girl. And this guy goes over and tries to lift her. He cannot budge her. It can't be lifted off the ground. It's amazing. And yet, the other visionaries, these other girls, could they could lift each other easily. They would pick each other up easily to lift each other because they would lift each other up to hold these items for the apparition to kiss. So this supernatural weight is a thing that that happens.
0: It's it's a real thing. Isn't that in Fatima too? Isn't that part of um, it somewhere?
2: I, it might be. It might be. You'd think I, having just done that, you'd think I know. But it, it, yeah, it, it comes up. It, it comes up. Uh, it's a really really interesting thing. So she, Saint Gemma, manifests this supernatural weight towards the end of her life. Um, eventually, you know, Good Friday of 1903. However appropriate that is. She enters into her final ecstasy. They said her arms are outstretched as if she's nailed to a cross. And she. this ecstasy lasts until the following day. And they basically know she's going to die. They call a priest in. She's given the last rites. And then uh, 1 p.m. Holy Saturday. So 1 p.m. the next day she dies. Um, they said those who observed her said, you know, like she was totally peaceful looking. And she had asked that she would be able to die on a great feast day. So, uh, the, the nuns who attended Gemma in her last days commented, we've managed a great many of sick people, but never have we seen anything like this. So she left quite an impression on those around her. They said she looked beautiful. She didn't look like she was dead. Um, and she was already basically being hailed as a saint. People were coming to her and at her dead body and touching stuff to her body to, to, to make relics. They said that. The the nuns had to basically guard her hair. There's so many people wanted pieces of her hair. They said she would have been bald. They would have just taken her hair completely off.
1: And she's so modern that there's a few photographs.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, um, yeah, I think five or so photographs of her. You can see actual photographs of her. Uh, and you can get actual relics, actual pieces of her body are out there. They're not cheap, but, you know, if you want them. You can find them actual pieces of her hair, and
1: is the trading of relics like that sanctioned by the church, or is that a no no
2: you are not supposed to sell them, yeah, you're allowed to give them away, but people get around it by saying, like, well, you're buying this rosary, and with it, I'm going to give you this relic, you know, so that's how people get around it so they will they will sell you a rosary for fifteen hundred dollars, and with it you will get you know a relic of of Gemma that's how they get around that and pieces so,
1: yeah. of people's corpses that's
2: yeah it could be the hair teeth yeah in fact uh at one point Gemma was given a tooth of uh saint gabriel of our lady of sorrows she had one of his teeth so um she's buried and then uh 14 days later i believe it was let's see yeah 14 days later she's exhumed for autopsy they remove her and they said no this is only 14 days but she said they said she's completely fresh completely incorrupt this is you know not a time where they were using formaldehyde or anything they were just putting people in a wooden box in the ground um but they took out her heart and it was when they were cutting into it. this the blood was completely fresh looking blood that's like sh- not should not be in a corpse that's 14 days old and they said her heart was um trying to find the quote it was misshapen flattened and stretched it appeared wider than it was long so she, something was odd was going on with her heart all the doctors in attendance to the autopsy were completely astonished by the condition of her blood she's reburied five years later she's exhumed again she's going to move uh move her to a what they determined to be a more suitable resting place for her her brother guido's there he and he she was buried with flowers and i don't know the condition of her body at the time so incorruptibility like is another thing with saints you'll find that that uh, not all of them but some of them uh don't rot the way other corpses do in fact they don't they don't behave at all like corpses should they don't smell bad they smell good uh they don't rot they, re- they remain very lifelike uh some of them will you know cry sometimes uh so so they sort of they don't uh, cause disease and cause sickness they heal people so they almost do you know again here we have this opposite thing They sort of do the opposite of what other corpses do. But in any case, um, they don't mention the condition of her body, if it was still incorrupt, but they, they did take the flowers out that she was buried with. And they said the flowers were completely as fresh as the the day they were buried. That was like a half a decade earlier. So that's pretty interesting stuff. uh, Given that they were in the ground for five years, but uh, she's, uh, credited with numerous uh, physical cures, um, incurable synovitis, stomach cancer, uh, various tumors, meningitis, uh, tubercular peritonitis, and nephritis. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, a monk, she's the patron saint for back pain. So she's she's a good one if you have back pain. It was, it was a a Kalamadigian monk had devastating back pain, could barely move, and he was cured. Uh, stomach ulcers and appendicitis so uh there it is there's even a modern uh there's a modern account of her which i didn't put in the podcast where it was a i believe it was a palestinian who had to get like through the checkpoint uh in israel and he didn't know how he was going to do it he, i don't know if he didn't have his papers or what he was a, a pal i believe he's a palestinian christian and he had talked to a uh A priest i think who was very sort of uh devoted to to saint gemma and i might have some of these details wrong but this is the the gist of the story essentially um this priest is telling her about saint gemma and then he's very very worried about crossing this checkpoint like he's like he doesn't know how he's going to get back and forth and uh this woman gets in the car this young woman with dark hair and she says just ride with me and they go right through the checkpoint they're not even stopped and he asks her his name and he, and she says, Oh, well, I'm, you know, your priest friend, Gemma, that's all she says. And he gets out of the car and goes on his way. So there's, there's this kind of very modern, you know, it's a very recent modern story of her, you know, appearing and, and helping this fellow get through this, this, uh, problematic situation. So yeah, she's, she's really interesting. Very, uh, visceral kind of very bloody story. Very, very, uh, appealing to, to those who'd like a lot of, uh, action in their saints, you know, a lot, a lot of de- fights with demons and a lot of blood and stuff.
0: Yeah, there was one thing where she went into, I think you said that she went into a church and there was the priest and the priest ended up being a demon or he was posing as a priest or something.
2: Yeah, she went to confession and she, she says um, she she found it odd because she's, I, you know, I guess she was waiting for confession, didn't see a priest go into the confessional, but all of a sudden there's a priest there, but she's thinking, well, I, I must not have seen him. Go into the confessional she goes in and starts giving confession and she says by the voice she recognizes this guy and it seems to be this priest that she knew that she'd you know had confession with before and then all of a sudden he starts you know using very vile language and and uh gestures and so forth and and she gets very flustered um she was known to uh be very affected, like somebody supposedly at dinner one night, um, used the Lord's name in vain or or, you know, in a in a curse word or something, and she like literally fainted, you know, like she was she was that sensitive to that kind of stuff. So I can't imagine, you know, if this uh what she thought was a priest was was saying these vile things, like how much that affected her. She she leaves the confessional and like sort of turns around to glance and then realizes it's empty. So whatever was in there just disappeared. Which um again uh saint padre pio had very similar thing where he had someone come into the confessional he was he was a priest so he was hearing confession and he had some you know a, a demon or or the devil or some some kind of uh dark entity come into the confessional for him so it's sort of a very similar episode
0: we're looking at something here tim and uh we're about to run out of time but talking about um the concept of the victim's soul Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get into that on the podcast, but yeah,
2: she's very much considered sort of the victim soul. And that is a person who takes on this, this sickness and this pain in life sort of for the conversion of others and for, for other people's souls. Um, it's yeah, it's a very, um, it's considered a very sort of honorable calling, you know, if, if you are a victim, victim soul, but yeah, she, she absolutely, uh, would be considered that.
0: Well, this is all very fascinating stuff, Tim. Um, what are some of the saints that are coming up that you're going to talk about? Do you have that kind of mapped out? Yeah, so the uh, I'm doing the
2: cephalophores. Like I said, the headless saints, that'll be a whole group of them in one episode. It won't be all of them, but it'll be a lot of them. Uh, St. Dennis is the most popular one, uh, but there's there's a bunch of others. I won't get into their stories because you'll hear them all. Uh, St. Edmund's another cool one. He ends up being the patron saint of wolves because a wolf guards his, his head. His head's cut off by vikings and they they throw it in the woods and this wolf guards it for you know several days so he that he ends up being the patron saint of wolves but uh a lot of cool stories about you know people getting their head cut off and still preaching and stuff so that that's coming up um and i'm gonna do so it's not gonna be all saints it'll be some mystics and stuff and some some other interesting sort of side roads so i'm gonna do a show on the poor souls so these are the souls in purgatory that have come in and appeared to people, uh, various people, saints and, and mystics and so forth. So I'm going to do a show on that coming up. And then um, Saint uh, Elizabeth Seton, she is the first saint that was ever born in America. Uh, so that will be coming up. And then I'll probably dig in deep to these uh, medieval saints because I just bought a bunch of really cool books that are translations of these old uh, manuscripts of uh, the saint lives of these medieval saints. So there'll probably be a lot of them as well.
0: All right. Well, cool. excellent, Tim, what's next for you? A book's coming on the pike or. So um,
2: the hermit book will be next as, as slow nice. as it's coming along. That's i am writing a book on hermits. That's, you know, all the hermits you've heard on strange familiars and then some beyond that, a lot more beyond that, really. So that's, and that book is ever growing. Cause I keep finding more hermits. So uh, it's, it's neat. It's so it'll be, you'll get to see each one of these hermits I'm writing about because I've, I've collected photos of them. So it's, you know, I pull out a photo and I write their story as much as I can find. And then, uh, but I, problem is I keep finding n- more photos and more, more hermits, but, uh, hopefully that w- I meant to have that out in 2022, but it's not going to happen. So hopefully 2023 is the year for the hermit book. After that, um, who knows bookwise, there's definitely more of the historical bigfoot books coming. The research is done. I just need to put together the books. The uh, East Coast will be next. So I'll do East Coast Wild Men, uh, which will be the entire East Coast. That should be a pretty thick book. And then after that, I don't know how to break down the country. like i need I need to figure out where where does the midwest end and the and the uh, West begin? Where does the
1: that's a philosophical question there,
2: yeah, exactly. Where does the South End and the Southwest begin? these are you know it's like a lot of times you get like well in the middle of texas well that doesn't help me it's not like i you know i have to to, uh figure out how to do these different regions but eventually i'll do the whole country with the historical bigfoot stuff so the, the, but the next one will be the east coast uh and then who knows you know there's there's some talk there's some talk with josh about a you know some some projects we're working on together yeah he told me yeah he told me some stuff yeah and you know strange familiars is going We're we are in the the cool weather time so lots of on-site shows coming up for that which are you know, some of my favorites to do i love going to these spooky places and doing the shows there so expect a lot of that from strange familiars coming up and then of course more of the same where i'm
0: interviewing people all the time and knocking shows out every week and if uh, people have not uh, heard of strange familiars and know where to get your books where can they find them so strangefamiliars.com has links to me and all my books
2: and all that contact information go- goes to me. Um, please like and subscribe everywhere. And the flower path is theflowerpath.com. Uh, please, that's you know, a very budding podcast. If you, can, if you can subscribe wherever you listen to that, that would help me a great deal. I'm trying to get the word out about that, trying to get that established. It's a, it's a, it's a new venture for sure so and I, there's a youtube channel as well it's all separate from strange familiar so if you could subscribe to both of them
0: that would be a great help okay excellent well and uh guys of course conspiranormal conspiranormal.com and uh, we have a youtube channel as well you guys can uh can find us there too give that a subscription and we also have a patreon too and uh, servio can tell you where you can find that
1: you can find that at patreon.com/conspiranormal. Uh, we've been getting back into posting regular Patreon episodes, so uh hope you guys enjoy that. And uh coming up here at the beginning of the year, we should uh, resume the monthly strange reality streaming presentations for the $10 and up level patrons
0: all right guys well thank you so much and uh next week uh we're actually going to talk about the history of the bible so that's going to be interesting to lead into this to that so uh all right uh, stay on the line for us tim we're going to close out the show and see you next time